Okay, welcome to another segment of Let's Talk UNLV on KUNV. You with co-host Keith and Renee. Renee, the weather's starting to cool off a little bit. We're not into this 110 and 115 and 118. Where I'm I got loving my, it. Where I got my family calling me like, <laughs> see, this is why I'm not moving to Vegas. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm loving it. What about you? Oh, how was your weekend? What you do this weekend? So, you know, there's the big gear up for the first day of classes, beginning with move-in and all of the Welcome Week events to get our students acclimated to the campus. Um, I have a council that I advise, and so we had a retreat and help them get started and envisioning how they're going to be impactful uh, to the projects and programs that they are doing. So uh, it was a, a work weekend, but all good things so that we can have a successful first day of classes, which I'm proud proud to report. Yes. Uh, all things considered, we are looking good. Yes, it's always good to see the students back. <clears throat> you know, I spent my weekend recovering, <laughs> you know, in addition to my normal Uber duties with my sons, you know, now you're getting back into the Muscle memory of getting yeah. into the car because, you know, the you know K-12 started last week. Right. So, you know, just getting back into dropping off and picking up and running mm-hmm. around. And mm-hmm. now you got some homework to do. Yeah. So just getting back into that flow of, of school, which is great, which is, is great. It is. <clears throat> but, you know, I'm excited, Renee. But I guess today we have uh, Dr. Carlton Craig with us, who's a director and professor in the School of Social Work. Dr. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. And for the audience, here. could you share a little bit about a little bit about yourself and how long you've been at UNLV? Uh, yes, I've been at uh, UNLV for since 2016. Um, I came here as the director of the School of Social Work. And I'm glad Dr. Craig is on the show, Renee, because as I was talking about, I'm a little traumatized with all this kids back to school. And so I'm looking forward to gleaning some of his <laughs> expertise. Hope he can give me some tools and strategies to get my way at home. Yeah, so Dr. Craig, share with us what brought you to UNLV. What do you like about our city? Uh, you know, what do you like most in your role um, in the School of Social Work as the director? Sure. Um, uh, I came out at, as the director for the director, but what was uh, really um, uh, desirable for me when I was, you know, going through and uh, investigating, looking over uh, UNLV was the diversity and the diverse uh, student body um, um, and faculty, which was, um, and I, I've been right, it's really given me a rich um, uh, experience as compared to, you know, past experiences. And did Dr. Craig, I also see that you had a non-traditional pathway to getting your PhD. Could you talk a little bit about your journey from, you know, maybe high school to undergrad, uh, military service to uh, professor sure. where you are now. Sure. Um, I uh, grew up in a little, very small community in Ohio, um, and uh, it was a, a rural community. And as a result, uh, I went into the military, um, uh, the Army National Guard, to be able to afford to go to school. Um, and so um, I served six and a half years. Um, uh, in the Army National Guard, Ohio Army National Guard, um, and uh, went to undergrad at that point as well, at the, and graduated from Bowling Green State University with uh, in, with a degree in psychology and sociology, and then uh, at that point I went on to get my master's degree um, at Case Western Reserve in social work, um, and then from there I worked at the VA hospital. Uh, for approximately five years in uh, psychiatric day treatment, uh, which is where I really started working with trauma. Um, 
and um, and then at that uh, eventually I went back to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill after working for five years post masters um, and got my PhD in social work. Um, and at that point, I ended up uh, being an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky. And I was there, got 10 years as an associate, and I was there for 13 years before I came here. Now, we have a lot in common, you know, growing up in the Midwest. Me, mid- too. Growing up in the Midwest. Me, too. Now, Renee, we got a lot in common now. No, Dr. Craig, we hit some points. Go ahead. Well, let me hit mine first. Uh, okay. So you said a couple buzzwords. Small town, mm-hmm. and I always have to do a small town challenge. When someone says, hey, I grew up in a small town, I always have to sort of <laughs> show who's who grew up in a smaller town. So <laughs> okay. for you, what was, what was your population? They, they ranged from 110 to 125. How many that's stop gra- signs? Hold on, that's graduating, <laughs> that's graduating class, or that's your entire hometown population? That was my hometown population. Um, the, the, the high school I went to was a combination of two small towns. Um, and uh, uh, the, my high school class was 44 people. Oh, uh, Renee, I think I lost my small town title. <laughs> <laughs> How many stop no. signs in, the, in, these, in these two towns? Oh, in mine, I think there's um, uh, one, two, at least four. <laughs> and see, my home, my town, Midwest and Southeast Missouri, when I went to school, we were at our peak. We were at our strength. We had 300. Now we're we're under 100 now when I go home to visit my mom. But wow. I can yeah, see my, my title to you, Dr. Craig. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also having a military experience, too. I was also in the in the Army, active duty, then National Guard here in, here in Nevada. Renee, what were your connections to Dr. Craig's? Um, well, he was at UNC Chapel Hill. I am a University of Kansas Jayhawk, so, you know, we, we're, we're kind of rivals in that basketball sport. <laughs> so we understand yeah, what it's like to be at big schools uh, that have uh, uh, big sports programs. But also, I uh, was in Kentucky. I was at Kentucky State for uh, four years, and I was also at, at uh, University of Pikeville, Kentucky. So I, I love the... The state, and uh, so, and very familiar with uh, UK and its program. So let's get to like th- this business of trauma, though. Uh, tell us what is trauma. What specific areas of trauma do you specialize in? Uh, you know, is it in children, adults, um, and, and how did you come to, to to be a part of that work? Was it through your military experience, personal experience? Talk to us about this this field of, of research that you have. Sure. Well, first of all, trauma is when someone is either directly experiences, witnesses, or hears about a loved one experiencing uh, a life-threatening event. Um, and uh, most of, you know, uh, things, disasters, uh, learning that your uh, uh, spouse or, or child has died of COVID-19 is a recent example. Um, you know, if you, so you can, you can actually, um, be informed of someone that's really close to you, um, death, et cetera, and that can cause a trauma. Um, or you can actually go through the trauma yourself. You know, maybe you ended up in, in, the, uh, the ICU on the respirator and you now you're, you're out, you made it, but you're traumatized from that experience. You can be traumatized from that experience. That's a direct experience. Um, or you, you may have witnessed uh, uh, someone dying at that point, and that can also cause a trauma. Wow. And so what drew you to studying trauma? Um, it's a long, really long story. Um, I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible. I've been studying 
trauma in some way, shape, or form for 30 years, mm-hmm. um, uh, since approximately 1991. Um, and that's where I, where I did a, um, a practicum in my master's social work at, at the VA hospitals. Um, and I worked on several psychiatric uh, wards um, where a, a large number of the veterans had, had post-traumatic stress disorder and other, some other, other conditions associated. And so that started me off, you know, the, in 1991, I worked on a, what was called a dual diagnosis board back then, where they were treating both the, the mental disorder and the, the substance issue. Um, and then, um, from there, um, I got into doing research in children's mental health when I went back to, um, uh, uh, get my PhD, um, but before that, I went to the Detroit VA hospital and worked in psychiatric daycare for four straight years, which is, you know, we, we saw some of the worst cases of post-traumatic stress, uh, individuals who were starting to actually experience psychotic symptoms as well from, from their, from their uh, PTSD. And so uh, from there, I, I went into research in the children's mental health at North Carolina, and I came out and I worked. Uh, was capped when I went to UK to work for a, a children's trauma center. Uh, and I worked with them for 13 years where we wrote grants and provided uh, assessment and trauma intervention and research for some of the worst child welfare cases in Kentucky. And some of the reason that the resources had originally been put into it is at one at one point, one year, Kentucky was listed as number one in child abuse fatality. And so um, this is kind of where I, you know, started really getting, working with the research part of it as well. And also getting trained in what we call trauma-informed evidence-based practices. And could you speak a little bit about your experience sort of working with these diverse populations? You know, I know you talked about uh, refugees and children, Mm -hmm. about some of that research and maybe what some of your findings are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, as part of the, the research I did, especially starting out um, for the first 13 years um, of my life, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I did two areas of research. I uh, worked at the trauma center and did research with the children, um, and usually it was intervention research. Um, did this intervention work? Did this one, you know, not, you know, what, if it didn't work so well, why was kind of the research. And then, um, uh, for I also did research with adults, and, and my adult research was predominantly with refugee populations. At the time, it was Bosnian refugees, um, but we also did some research with Congolese refugees, um, and uh, we were looking at uh, the research that we laid out, um, me and one of my uh, research partners, was that oftentimes when refugees come here, uh, the emphasis is public health, you know, if they got their shots or they, you know, um, you know, and basically getting them a job in, in, in language acquisition. But uh, a lot of times um, they really uh, ignore the mental and behavioral health of the refugee. And um, a number of the refugees, like the Bosnians, had went through a, a genocide. And so uh, we uh, took a sample of uh, Bosnian refugees that had been um, uh, in that had been resettled here in the United States for more than nine years, and we looked at their mental health and found that they were still uh, 
significantly struggling uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder, symptomology, depression. Um, one of the findings we found most prevalent was that traumatic grief, long-term chronic grief was, was more prevalent. It was about 54% of the population. And we're talking about people who had experienced anywhere from three to four traumas during the, the, the Civil War over there. And what was interesting is some of the research findings we had, because I was also working with the children and uh, the kids that were coming in to the center, uh, we would do a, a thorough trauma assessment. And a number of the children who had, were coming through had experienced about four traumas. So something that was always um, really kind of slapped me in the face as a researcher was that that our a lot of our uh, American children um, who make it into the child welfare system and and who are being abused and who we are are going through about the same amount of traumas as uh, someone who's went through a genocide. Bosnian the, the Bosnian refugees were example. They they were averaging about four traumas as were the children who were coming from uh, in through child welfare. Wow. <laughs> so yes. four traumas. I mean, so what kind of um, interventions or what kind of treatment would someone who has sustained four traumas receive from someone like yourself or another practitioner or clinician? Or Sure. Um, we <clears throat> First, we did a very thorough assessment, including family and, and um, uh, you know, the, one of the number one things that you have to determine is will the family, you know, the, or whoever the caregiver is in this case, a lot of times, um, you know, follow up, get the, get the child in into the treatment. Um, and uh, once we had the, the assessment done and everything, then they would go into, um, at the time, one of three uh, trauma-informed uh, evidence-based practices um, for the kids that were seven and above, they were normally put in what was called trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, for the kids who were uh, usually younger, um, around uh, three and four and up to about seven or eight, they were put in, uh, into parent-child interaction therapy. Um, oftentimes, um, uh, it was possible to have the, the the, the child do both sometimes, you know, if they aged into kind of the trauma-focused CBT. And is that approach <clears throat> different in how you, uh, I guess, diagnose and treat youth versus adults or based on different types of trauma? Well, it, it, the, the, the trauma-focused CBT, um, if that's the one you're asking about, has um, a set of modules um, that is geared for family treatment as well. You could do um, uh, uh, conjoint family therapy as you're working with the child. So uh, you see the child for a period of time, and then you individually see the caregiver or parent um, for a period of time. And then eventually you come together conjointly. Um, uh, uh, TFCBT, um, uh, there is a there is an adult version of uh, adult, but the more specific evidence based one is primarily for kids and teenagers. Um, and the big thing that um, is it's a form of exposure therapy uh, and a way to desensitize the individual to the trauma. And the way that it's done is after about six or seven weeks of learning a set of skills, including uh, deep breathing, 
and other relaxation skills, um, effective modulation. Uh, we do a lot of psychoeducation with the parent um, and the child. And uh, once they've went through these modules and mastered these modules, then we introduce them to what's called the trauma narrative. And the trauma narrative is where they tell their story. They write a little book, you know, and when we're talking book, like a chapter is like maybe two or three sentences. Um, uh, and they tell it over and over to the, the uh, therapist. The, the whole idea is to eventually get extinction of the anxiety. Um, and hopefully they become bored with the story instead of, you know, crying and excessively. And, and eventually once there's control obtained, we have them read it to the um, family member, the caregiver. It comes back together. They come back together on that. Um, and, you know, we try to make sure that the caregiver is in control, um, you know, and, and able to handle, you know, the reading of the story and everything because a, a strong caregiver is one of the big things you need for uh, a resilient child. So. so is the caregiver in therapy as well? Or they no, they're not considered as being in therapy. Um, they will be referred to therapists if you know they're having trouble, you know their own troubles uh, with trauma, et cetera. Um, but they do see the therapist for about about anywhere twenty fifteen to twenty minutes depends on um, for and it's really about the child though you know where the discussion is about the, the the trauma of the child and and having them focus on the child to get to help the child get better, child or adolescent. How has 2020 and the pandemic impacted what you've seen or what's going on in, in, the, in the trauma discipline in these sort of um, distressed or diverse communities? Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, one of the things, the reasons I went into social work was it was the, the social justice aspect and the, um, and it's, that neighborhoods um, uh, low, that have low socioeconomic uh, issues a lot of times often have more um, um, events that create tra traumatic you know, traumatic stress. Um, and certainly um, uh, one, one of the things that has happened was initially there was less gun violence going on um, uh, during the first part of the of the pandemic, which was which was helpful. Um, but recently, the pan, the gun violence has really ramped up, and so, um, and so now we're seeing a, a big increase in that. Um, the uh, just the, the the violence, the racial violence that was, um, uh, uh, you know, basically that manifested um, in uh, 2020 um, uh, was also, you know. Uh, you know, a lot of populations were traumatized by that. Um, and so all of these things can build up if, if you're in a, a, a neighbor, a neighborhood where there's a lot of crime or a lot of violence, um, uh, your exposure is going to be more. You've probably been exposed to uh, 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 more uh, traumatic events than others. And then um, uh, you experience COVID, you experience um you know, it's kind of a, a, a snowball effect. The more traumas you have, the harder it is to maintain that resilience. It doesn't mean that people don't. Um, a lot of, you know, resilience is a very important thing. It's important to note that only about 10% of the, 
of individuals in our society, it's anywhere from 8 to 10% go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And about 70 to 80% of our uh, population actually experience a trauma, index trauma in their life. So um, we're a very resilient society. Um, uh, women tend to experience uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, two times more than men do. Um, it's about 5.4% for men and about 10% for women. And so specifically, what are you seeing in UNLV students as you uh, serve as the director? Um, well, I've seen a lot of grief. Um, uh, and, uh, we, you know, we've, we've had some losses, that certainly, especially in, in the community. And a lot of times what gets missed is community loss. Um, uh, yeah, and, and so we've been trying to help bring uh, our community together, the social work community is what I'm talking about right now, um, and let people process, you know, their losses. Uh, one of the things that's really, really we need to focus on, um, uh, we kind of sometimes get lost in post-traumatic stress and trauma, and we forget to look at people's grief and traumatic grief, and um, uh, that's a very important thing to acknowledge and let people grieve and give them the chance to talk. Um, and um, so those are some of the things that, you know, and I've noticed that, you know, there are, you know, if they've had uh, relatives that have been sick um, or were sick themselves, that, that they, you know, tend, they still seem pretty resilient to me, but the ones I've seen, but there are uh, some signs of trauma. Um, so I'm curious, uh, when you have um, a push to try to resume some sense of normalcy or return to in-person activity and events and, uh, you know, a college experience that is typical, um, mm -hmm. can that have some um, unintentional impact because, you know, we're not really allowing the grief um, to uh, be experienced by individuals that have experienced, you know, community loss, by, you know, students that have grieved because they've lost a loved one or they've uh, mm -hmm. you know, lost a loved one either to COVID or to, you know, gun violence um, or mm -hmm. they've, you know, lost a parent to another illness or there's been financial loss. There's been loss regarding uh, just very experiences that students couldn't capture um, in their, you know, last days of high school. Um, and, and so are we somehow um, in a way creating more trauma or being, um, not as mindful of how that trauma can um, surface uh, when we're trying to really push for a sense of normalcy. Yeah, and it, it's really it's a tough it's a tough question, um, but we should we very much so should be acknowledging people's loss, you know. And and sometimes people don't want to talk about it, right? They right. Don't, you, know, you don't want to just completely push people into talking about their grief in the middle of a class or something like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, instructors and folks who are in leadership positions and things, and including the people that you're, you're um, over as an as a administrator, um, you need to understand that, you know, people are going through an extraordinary um, time and probably do have a lot of loss. And a lot of these losses that you just outlined um, oftentimes are overlooked as, as part of the grieving experience. And... Um, uh, administrators and 
faculty, whoever whoever's got in a leadership position, should acknowledge that and provide. Sometimes you know if they see someone struggling, some individual time, and let them talk about it if they so desire. Um, but the the main thing is to uh, encourage people not to grieve alone. Okay, we'll get you out of here on this final question. Um, is there anything okay. that you think is important to share with the with the listeners about trauma or your experience or recommendations that we may not have asked or discussed so far? I think people, like I said, I think people are extremely resilient. Um, uh, but if you are experiencing um, symptoms where you're re-experiencing the trauma, where you're avoiding people, places, things that remind you of the trauma, um, you're having... Um, uh, maybe in a flashback or, or um, you're also experiencing cognitive symptoms, memory problems, concentration problems, impulsivity, things like that. And it's starting to get in the way of your functioning. In other words, working, going to school, um, uh, family life, et cetera. Then you should consider uh, getting into therapy um, and asking about a trauma-informed evidence-based practice that would um, uh, a lot of times cognitive behavioral therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, uh, I'm with desensitization and reprocessing called EMDR is often um, uh, recommended for trauma. Um, but when you, if you're, you're experiencing symptoms that are getting in the way of your function, you should consider therapy. Um, but there's a whole host of other things you can do, um, including um, even yoga and mindfulness are starting to have some evidence for treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and, and maintaining an exercise regimen, um, uh, trying to maintain a schedule that's as normal as possible. Um, and uh, if you have religious beliefs and things like that, um, continue to engage in those. Uh, don't disengage. Um, um, social support is very important. And so uh, you can have traumatic stress but not have traumatic uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, um, that's a different thing. The disorder means you're having uh, functional impairment, and you've had functional impairment for about 30 days. All right, Renee, that was a lot of great information. Heavy. <laughs> I was I was trying not to self-diagnose myself the whole time. <clears throat> uh, no, but really, I'm just glad that we have Dr. Craig on staff. Um, I did not know about uh, Dr. Craig or this resource that we have but so many important points and our responsibilities as administrators and educators to allow staff and our students to acknowledge their grief. I think we're pressed, you know, to try to get to the next thing, to the next project, mm -hmm. uh, to the next, uh, you know, uh, initiative. But uh, that can be uh, very, very uh, harmful, it sounds. And so I'm glad that uh, Dr. Craig listed those uh, ways to... Um, you know, for us to provide support, specifically since some of these things already exist in student life. We have our Student Recreation Wellness Center to provide yoga, and we have our, you know, health clinic to help with, you know, mindfulness and and so forth. And um, so just really good to know that we have these resources right here that students um, and staff that they can access. What was your takeaway? Well, you know, after I got over the loss of my small town title, <laughs> you know, then I could refocus. It took me a little bit you know, time to refocus. But, you know, some of the resources that you described, I think, are incredibly mm -hmm. important. But probably the thing that was most surprising to me is, you know, just remembering uh, Dr. Craig just reminding us how resilient we are yes. in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, as a population, you know, mm -hmm. upwards of 70, 80 percent of 
the population yeah. experienced some traumatic event and how we're able yeah. to, yeah. you know, move forward and continue to uh, be positive and actively engaged in, in what we do. So that was something that was incredibly surprising to me. And I certainly appreciate some of the recommendations and how to sort of stay active and come back, you know, through yoga, mindfulness, et cetera. So I'll definitely want to make sure I continue to employ those things as well. Because I know you say, Renee, as sort of supervisors, we're always, you know, thinking about others. But I think the other part of it is making sure we also practice some of those same practices for ourselves. It's, it's Show incredibly you right. important too, you know. Show you right. Got to replenish ourselves so we can come to work ready to give, give and deplete ourselves to a certain extent. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of KUNV Let's Talk UNLV. From my co-host, Keith, I'm Renee. Tune in next week, Wednesday at 12, on KUNV 91.5 Jazz and More. That's a wrap. <laughs>